Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Carnison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest, and I'll be speaking with Barbara Kane, who is an expert on family caregiving and especially on navigating complicated relationships with aging parents. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and in 1999, she co-authored the book, Coping with Your Difficult Older Parent, A Guide for Stressed Out Children. Since 1982, she has been the director and co-founder of Aging Network Services, a social work care management agency based in Bethesda that provides psychotherapy, consultations, and care management to adult children and to their aging parents. As you probably know, it's fairly common for people to have complicated relationships with parents, and as age-related challenges come up for those older parents, it tends to make things even more complicated. I first read the book, Coping with Your Difficult Older Parent, a few years ago, and I was just right away struck by how practical and helpful and insightful it was. And so it's a book that I recommend often to families ever since, and so I'm just so delighted that today Barbara is available to join us to talk about this dynamic between older parents and their adult children, and especially to share insights about what can be done when an older person is quote-unquote difficult, or if the relationship otherwise feels very stressful when helping an aging parent. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you, Leslie. I want you to tell us a little bit more about you and what you do and how you came to write the book, but I thought actually that if you don't mind, can we start with what many in the audience are probably wondering, which is what is a quote unquote difficult parent? Okay, that's a great question. The, a difficult parent is a small subset of older adults. Older adults are not all difficult, but these are people who have been difficult all their lives. It's like they have a difficult personality. And if you have a parent like this, you know it because nothing ever seems to be satisfactory sometimes. Sometimes they're very um, self-centered. Other times they're very, very negative. And many of these people can't keep friends. So we're not talking about difficult situations like um, someone has to move or someone needs caregiving. We're talking about their personality. Mm, Okay. Well, good. Well, I know in a moment we're going to talk a little bit more about behaviors that can be especially difficult to cope with. But, But before we go into that, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you and your co-author, Grace LeBeau, to write a book about this topic? Well, we have been doing psychotherapy and care management for many, many years, and our clients came to them really ready to tear their hair out. Mm -hmm. 
And they were so stressed out and overwhelmed that many of them felt like they just wanted to give up and, and not talk to their parents. We know that a lot of people who have little babies can read books about their two-year-old, their three-year-old, their four-year-old, and the stages they go through. But there were no books back then on uh, difficult personalities of older people. So we wanted to write the book. And because we're psychotherapists, we're social workers, we wanted to do it in a way that was clinically correct. And we didn't want to use fancy jargon. Mm -hmm. So that's what led us to write the book. Yeah. And then didn't one of you also have a kind of personal story that was uh, related? I feel like I remember that from the prologue. Right. My colleague, Grace Lebo, um, had a mother-in-law who was difficult. She came to learn how to cope with her, both personally and her profession helped her too. So that instigated it. Mm -hmm. And she, along with her husband and myself, got together and we interviewed a lot of people uh, and uh, disguise them to make for each chapter to come alive with examples. Mm -hmm. Great. So, and just to clarify a little bit about your background and your agency, Aging Network Services, you have a social work degree, but I guess you also have a therapy degree. Is that common for people to have both? Well, Social work is the um, profession that we are. We have eight people on our staff in Bethesda, Maryland, and many social workers. In fact, most psychotherapists around the country are social workers. So a, social, a licensed clinical social worker can be a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. And what we do in our firm is we do consultations with adult children who want these special tools to deal with their difficult parents. Um, we also deal with adult children who have easy parents. We do therapy in our offices and we do care management, which is a whole nother subject right. of visit, visiting people in their homes. And kind of helping to oversee care or solve problems. Is that right? Right, mm -hmm. right. And the final thing that might be of interest to your viewers is that back in 1982, we established a national network of private care managers to uh, attend to older people who are split by distance from their children. Mm -hmm. So we have a network across the country of care managers like us who attend to the older people and it can be extremely helpful. And sometimes the older person doesn't have to move. Okay. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners might be interested in learning more about something like that. So after we, we finish our talk, I'll be sure to get the right link from you and we'll be sure to post it in the show notes. So really briefly, it actually sounds to me like what you and your colleagues do could be described, fall within the umbrella of what has been called geriatric care management. And I know the National Association of uh, Geriatric Care Managers renamed themselves the Aging Life Care Professionals. And I believe you're, you're a, a certified aging life care professional. Is that right? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I always like to bring that up because um, I've noticed that sometimes people don't realize that there are professionals with these skills of both care management and, you know, therapy or relationship management that can be helpful if they're feeling right. really stuck with uh, about what to do about an older parent. That's right. And mainly the children and their 
parents, especially if the parents are difficult, trigger each other. Mm. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a professional can be a kind of a buffer, right? And can also not get triggered, right? Right. Yeah. Well, what I love about what you do also is that I found that, you know, people often come to me or to others because, you know, they want to solve some specific problem with their older parents, you know, that the house isn't safe or, or, or some other issue, but there are all these uh, underlying relationship tensions, which may or may not relate to the older person. The older person may or may not have a lifelong history of being difficult. And I think people initially don't realize how valuable it can be to, uh, to tend to those, you know, whether it's by reading a book or by getting help from someone like you. Right. Usually a person that has very, very difficult, has been difficult all their lives, but the, but the situation is that the children don't have to take care of their parents because they're not old. So sometimes the children just move far away Mm. and don't have to deal with their parents. But when the parents get to be in their 80s and 90s, families come together in in a very intense way. And this is where things can go wrong. Yeah. So um, let's go a little bit more into difficult, you know, the ways in which difficult people can become difficult older adults. So in your book, you actually, you have a neat little quiz to help people determine whether their older parent might fall, uh, might be demonstrating one of six categories of difficult behavior. Can you briefly take us through those six categories of difficult behaviors? Sure. The first is dependency. And that's when your parent wants you all the time and uh, depends on you to make decisions for them and um, can't even make trivial decisions. Mm -hmm. Does it also count as dependency when they they only want you to be the one helping them or socializing with them? Yes, they, they want you in particular all the time and cannot tolerate being alone. They really need you to be with them. So you might have a whole day out with them, uh, shopping or going to the mall, and then then you part ways, and then they may call you a few times because they're on empty. Mm. They need you. They need to depend on you. They want to come over, and you've just spent a lovely day with them. Mm-hmm. So they may not be able to be satisfied. Mm-hmm. Or they may not sound very appreciative for all that time or- you just spent with them. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the next, the next one is turnoff behaviors. These are very, very difficult. This is when s- your parent tends to view you as all good or all bad, sometimes changing from day to day. Maybe your brother is all good one day, and then you are all good one day, and it just changes. Or you have to be right all the time. Um, another uh, symptom is that you cut off relationships with people and you don't maintain friendships. That's because, you know, you're, you're viewing them with the slightest hurt, you're wounded and you may not recover and repair like other people, you just cut off. So underneath these turnoff behaviors is a real strong sense of being abandoned. Mm -hmm. And this is the way they cope with it. And 
you know, when we're little kids, we tend to view others as all good or all bad, maybe when we're three years old, but after a while, you, you learn emotionally, you go into another stage where you know your parent has good and bad qualities. But these people haven't been able to do that. So it's a very primitive kind of behavior that's very, very hard to change. It's the children who need to change. Mm-hmm. Okay. The third one is self-centered behaviors. These are more easy to understand because they're self-involved. They have very little empathy for others. They, they can't put themselves in your place. You're, you are the sun and everyone around you is revolving around you. Mm-hmm. You're very insensitive to other people and you're jealous of other people. Mm-hmm. So that's self-centered. That, that can be very disturbing when you're giving all the time to your parents and they're not really empathic. They're not appreciating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that sounds so, a little bit like what some people, um, I feel like a, people will sometimes complain that their, their older parent is very narcissistic or is a narcissist. Everything is about them. It's, it sounds like they might be referring to some of these self-centered behaviors that you're. Well, we us. would have used the word narcissist, but we, th- this is narcissistic personality problems Mm -hmm. we tried to keep it without jargon but Mm -hmm. it is narcissistic Mm -hmm. yeah i've just Uh found the public brings up that term uh quite a lot (laughs) in my experience absolutely so the other categories controlling Mm -hmm. is another one and that is when your parent can't tolerate any differences in you and them they just can't tolerate they want you to be like them they manipulate you through guilt and flattery and um, they become angry and hostile when people don't behave as they want them to behave. They make demands very excessive. And um, you know when you have a controlling parent. Mm-hmm. And the next one is self-destructive. That's when your parent is addicted to alcohol, drugs, they might have eating disorders, they might be accident prone, they might behave masochistically, meaning sometimes not taking medicine uh, or um, not complying with the diet. Mm-hmm. Um, self-destructive even can be thinking about suicide. Mm-hmm. So this is a very serious behavior. Mm-hmm. that we can see, particularly in older people who have been so miserable all their lives. Mm-hmm. And um, they're really their own worst enemy. And with aging, assault, assaults of aging and a difficult personality, it's almost like a double whammy. Right, right. Yeah. And I think there's one more category, the sixth one. The fearful behaviors mm-hmm. are people that are anxious, very anxious. Sometimes they might have panic attacks and they might be very preoccupied with physical problems. They may go doctor shopping a lot. Uh, They may have sleep problems. They're worry warts Mm -hmm. over big things and little things, but a lot of times they're worry warts over little daily things that they almost can become impaired by. So these these behaviors underlying all of them are the sense of abandonment. And there's something in their early life that could be an event or, or 
a series of events that have led them to be to have these behaviors. And I just don't want to forget to tell you that we dedicated the book to your difficult parents, may their pain be better understood. Mm -hmm. Because we're very, we commiserate with older people with these behaviors because they cannot help having them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's good to remind people of that. I think it's hard when you're the child of somebody like very, this, very because you have just a lifetime of of frustration or of, you know, feeling um, hurt and disappointed. Absolutely. By, uh, by this. And um, so I think people can often, you know, without reminders and support, it can be hard for them to feel empathy, because they they just feel like they've been harmed. And when they don't feel empathy, they can feel that they're not nice people. Because mm -hmm. they're not nice to not like their parents. And they don't want to admit it, but they don't like their parents. Right, right. And then they feel guilty. And it's a it's a whole vicious cycle. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do all the time is helping adult children be more objective about their parents so that they don't take it so personally and they're so wounded and so triggered and so hurt and so angry that it just clouds everything they do for their parents. We're trying to help them. We're trying to help give them special tools in how they communicate with their parents. And I, I've ad adapted or adopted the word special needs parents because, mm. you, you know, you think about special needs children, mm -hmm. but special needs parents need children who have special needs to cope with them. Mm -hmm. So I really feel like your parent isn't going to change. So you really need to do the work in understanding the, your parent and their background and how maybe they came to be like this, and then to have more compassion for them. Mm -hmm. So true. Well, I know you mentioned earlier that most older adults are not difficult people, have not historically been difficult people, That's and right. are not particularly difficult. And in my experience, when problems start coming up, age-related challenges, their children often experience them as being as becoming more difficult, either because the older parent and their child are having, you know, kind of a difference of opinion about what should be done. And understandably, a lot of older adults resist being told what to do by their children and are, you know, they're often just trying to cope with their own adapting to the changes, which, uh, well, which, which is a lot. Leslie, a great example of that is driving. Mm -hmm. When you've driven all your life and it's a sign of independence, you never want to give up your license. And it's a tremendous loss. One of the biggest losses is your loss of driving. And your kids feel that you're too old or they've seen you have little accidents and they want you to stop. And the parent may not ever have been difficult at all. They just don't want to stop driving. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a very good example of, um, you know, of children not having difficult parents, but having the, but trying to have their parents do something they want. Right, right. Well, I guess what I was thinking was that I think even for the older adults who haven't been lifelong difficult people, the situations can be difficult. And it seems to me that many of the suggestions you make mm -hmm. in your book of having some empathy and, uh, and thinking about, you know, what can you, the adult child, do to approach this differently are still really helpful. Yeah. 
empathy is a big one. Mm -hmm. You can use that for any relationship in your whole life. Empathy. Right. I I can give a lot of examples, but Mm -hmm. we empathy and listening skills are the biggest skills that we that we talk about. Okay. So I know in your book, you sort of start off describing those six categories of difficult behavior, and you have a little quiz to help people figure out, you know, which ones seem their older parents seem to fit into particularly, and then you have chapters addressing each with with suggestions. And so I want to encourage all the, you know, the listeners, if they think they may have a difficult older parent, I think your book is a great resource. But overall, can you share with us a little bit more about what your overall approach is to helping an adult child who comes to you and is very stressed out about their their difficult aging parents? Well, we sometimes start with just examples to get a sense of their communication patterns. Mm-hmm. And some children are real pleasers. Mm. They find out that they want to um, do everything possible for their parent and make them super comfortable and even at the cost of themselves and their marriage and their kids. And these are children that come to us and sometimes they're even in their 60s and they have 95-year-old parents. I mean, they're aging too and they get depleted, but they want to continue their lifelong pattern of pleasing. We take a look at that and we, we can give them what is normal and what is excessive you know, Mm -hmm. pleasing. And if they're entering therapy, we go into this in much more depth, but they're coming to a professional because what they're doing is not working. Mm. They are in a rut because no matter how much they please, their, their parent is not getting satisfied or is not appreciating them or is nasty to them. Mm -hmm. So we take a look at how they can set limits Mm-hmm. And make their lives, the children, the adult children, to take a look at balancing their lives more and not, you know, a lot of children come to us pretty sick. They have, it's almost, you know, stress-related problems of sleeping and eating and, oh sure you know, all these problems. So they're coming because they know they're losing this battle. They're in power struggles and, you know, this pleasing is one. We have other children who come to us that want to fix everything. Mm. They're fix, they have a fix-it mentality, and their parents just want them to listen. Mm-hmm. And we have other children that want to argue a lot. Mm-hmm. So some of the shortest kinds of, um, uh, I guess, help we give, sometimes in a few sessions, is just to stop arguing and stop trying to fix and stop trying to please. Now, this is, sounds very simplistic, but it isn't. It goes very deep. Mm-hmm. And when they try one tool, which is to stop arguing, for instance, mm-hmm. we, we see a total change. People have come back to us and said, I haven't argued with my parent since the day I saw you. And it has completely changed our relationship. Mm. So sometimes there's kind of a quicker way of if you just follow a script of not arguing, not trying to please, not trying to fix. But if that doesn't work because you can't do it, Mm -hmm. then it means it only means that we have to go into 
therapy, Mm -hmm. not just following a script out of a consultation. Mm -hmm. You have to go a little deeper to see what's getting in the way. Right. So it sounds like, you know, one thing you do is really help adult children gain a greater awareness of, you know, what they're bringing to this interaction with their older parents. I what guess. pattern they have, yes. The pattern that they have and what they bring to it and how that might be... Self-defeating? Yes, or perpetuating the role it's playing right. in the problem that the, exactly. that the adult uh, or that the, the person is having with their, their aging parent. And what are some other things that you help the adult children realize to help them you well, know, get out of this ex- rut? Right. I'll give you an example of a man in a rut. Mm-hmm. He was raised by a very narcissistic mother and felt uh, she was very demeaning and he always felt like a bad boy. Mm. And she would um, scold him and tell him he never did the right, doesn't do the right thing. And any present he would give her, she would think was awful. It was pretty uh, extreme. So he grew up with a, a pretty negative self-image until he learned through uh, through coming to us, that his mother, and they used this questionnaire that we had in the book, he used it, was very, very self-centered. Mm-hmm. And he read every book he could lay his hands on to, um, to figure out, to learn more about narcissism. Mm-hmm. And he also learned about, by talking to relatives, older relatives, he learned about his mother's upbringing and what her particular struggles were. And he started to have over a year, he started to have more compassion for her and he changed the way he thought about her. Mm -hmm. He thought about her as a kind of a miserable person rather than her just throwing darts at him Mm -hmm. and him feeling so badly. And he gains more confidence and more skills in actually trying to satisfy her a little bit by having more empathy for her. I'm sorry I didn't bright, bring the right gift for you, Mom. Or uh, whatever it was, he would, he would try to be kinder to her and give her more attention, more positive attention. Mm-hmm. And um, their relationship improved because he did the changing. She didn't do any changing. Mm -hmm. So he realized that uh, it wasn't realistic to try to get her to stop being so critical by, you know, refusing to hear it or arguing with her about it or trying to help her see that she was being so critical and it was hurtful to him. He just found that if he could remind himself that she is like this because she is inside kind of a miserable person due to her own childhood right? right. And, and exactly. just be kind to her and I guess not take it so personally, the hurtful things she was saying. That's exactly right. He became a student of narcissism rather than a wounded son. Well, kudos to him, but it, it sounds actually pretty challenging <laughs> to, to reach that point. Was Is it possible for most people to get there without sort of a lot of therapy? For some people, as I said, you could read our book Mm -hmm. and stop doing one thing that you've done over and over again because it's not working, like Mm -hmm. arguing, like trying to be rational. Mm -hmm. The people that are difficult usually are 
that they're more, they could be extremely bright, but their interpersonal communications and their feelings about themselves and others are extremely irrational. Mm -hmm. So if your mother says, um, I can't stand where my new uh, apartment is, I, I can't, I can't stand all the old people and I, I'm just going to stay in my room and I'm so miserable. If, if a daughter said, oh, mom, I know you're miserable, but there are, and then she puts a comma after that. And she says, but you know, there are so many lovely people there. That comma and the rest of the sentence will feel to her like an abandonment. Mm -hmm. The empathy, the first part of the sentence, oh, mom, I know you're miserable, is comforting to a difficult person. Mm. But the second half, but you know you have to get along with people here. This is a whole community. That feels like an abandonment. Mm -hmm. So if children can, adult children can learn how to just be empathic and stop there, um, for that moment, the parent may feel okay. They won't have to lash out or an argument won't have to escalate. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing thing if you try it out. Mm -hmm. And so when you're asking what this, the time limit on this, the time, if you try these things out, they can work beautifully and you don't even have to see a professional if they work. Mm -hmm. But if you can't do them because you feel that it's not real for you, it's not authentic, it's just a script and you're bothered by it, or you, you just can't even do it, then you might be very helped. Because what a therapist can do is help you with any difficult bosses, mm -hmm. sisters, brothers, children, mm -hmm. spouses. It's talking about, you know, how to get along with people that are difficult. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And in terms of, you know, the example you were giving, I think it sort of gets at this idea that people often just deeply appreciate and respond to feeling heard and validated. And often we reflexively want to help them feel better about a situation, right? So we're trying to frame the positive. Right. And it's well intentioned, but, in a, but it, it often sort of falls flat because strangely, they feel better with, oh, yeah, that does really sound hard. Mm -hmm. I can see why that would feel um, awful. And I see so many adult children who just, they just want their parents to be happier and to see that it's not all bad. <laughs> and, right. and I understand you know, that they want that, but that it's unintentionally creating this, this problem because the older person is not feeling heard and validated. That's correct. I think the, the, the art of listening is really very lost. <laughs> And I think that everyone wants to feel special and wants to be listened to. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. But it's I also, also sort of about accepting their unhappy moment, like allowing them to have their unhappy moments. Well, unhappy lives. People come into our office and, I, and they say, we want mother to be happy. And I say, when was the last time in your life that you felt your mother was happy? And they look at me and they can't remember or they can't maybe... come up with a time. I get that too. You know, I want my older parent to not be anxious all the time. I'm right. say, well, and when, 
yeah, when were they, have they always been anxious? Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. like, well, then it's, it's unlikely to get better at this time. <laughs> That's right. Um, so the, the mission for all, old, for children is to, t- this is, this is the, the words I use, is to tolerate their parents' unhappiness. Mm. And I have to tell you that I'll just give a visual example. A son goes into a mother's apartment and she's down, she's very depressed and down, and he brings up oh the grandchildren and and she says, Oh, I never see them. And he he says, Well, we'll come next week. And and she says, All I rate is one day a week. Mm. And then he says, Well, I have to leave. And her head is on the dining room table. And he comes home and his wife's made dinner or he's made dinner. And he can go through the whole evening feeling just fine. Mm -hmm. He realizes that his mother is unhappy. He realizes he can't make her happy. He doesn't feel guilty. Mm -hmm. But two years prior to this, Mm -hmm. before he got help, it would ruin that evening, the next day, the right. next day. So it's tolerating mother or father's unhappiness and not having it affect you so internally that it, it affects your marriage and it mm-hmm. affects your life. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so important. The, uh, the you know, the kind of like what what your locus of control is as an adult child or somebody who's trying to help. And that I often tell families that I work with that, that instead of focusing on getting a certain outcome for your older parent, you know, what you can control is how you show up mm-hmm. and what you offer. And can you do that in the most empathetic, skilled way possible? And then the rest is kind of, you know, out of your control, out of your control. And especially if it's a lifelong, um, history of the older person behaving or feeling a certain way, that's, you know, that's unlikely to change. (laughs) That's right. So really, we're trying to make the moment that you're with them as, as pleasant as you can. Mm -hmm. Just it's, but it's not the next, it doesn't mean that the next moment or the next day, the parent is going to be pleasant. Right. Or appreciate what you did. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things that I really appreciated your book, and I think what we're getting at is related to this, is that you provide guidance on boundaries and setting limits. Can you talk a little bit more about this? And I was also thinking that sometimes I think people interpret setting limits as refusing to tolerate, quote unquote, bad behavior, you know? So if the older parent expresses negativity, it's like, I'm not going to listen to this. But I don't think that's what you're, you're getting at. So can you just share with us some suggestions on how to think about the, the better way to think about boundaries and setting limits with older okay. parents, especially difficult ones? Okay, I have an example. Great. Um, a mother calls her son every day at work. And he cannot talk to her, but he also needs to, he answers her phone call. And he's always saying, I'm at work, I'll call you later. And this goes on for years that she calls every single day. So what I talked to him about is having him take the control of calling her at home whenever, you know, maybe on a weekend at a certain time every single week and telling his mother, that he can spend much more time talking to her on the phone. This is long distance or even not long distance. He can spend much more time and give her much more attention 
if it's every Sunday morning, then these short calls during the week. So what what he's doing is posing a positive solution mm-hmm. and taking control. And then he might not answer the calls every day if she keeps calling. Mm-hmm. He has to reinforce that he's going to call her on Sunday mornings mm-hmm. and make it a ritual. And that's the kind of help that we give. It's getting, you know, it's that's a limit setting and he's taking more control, but he's also giving her more of a of himself. Right. It's kind of a win-win. Mm-hmm. And he might have to tolerate that she might be unhappy about him not answering right. the phone right. when he's at work. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what about, I think this, you know, it sounds so sensible and it is so important. And it seems to me that people often find it really hard to be firm about what's best for them or to figure out how to set a reasonable boundary, especially if their parent seems to experience really sort of serious health or safety issues when they attempt to set limits. So, you know, I'm thinking about, for instance, a dependent older parent who only wants their adult child to come and make them dinner, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the adult child feels like that's not really not feasible. And sometimes mm-hmm. these, these older people are also, you know, they might have the funds, but are refusing to hire help or allow someone else into the house. You know, no, it has to be you, my adult child. Any thoughts on how to set, how one might set limits there? Right. It means that that daughter or son needs to widen their own support system for themselves and their parent because it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And we have some creative ways, I'll just tell you a couple of them, Mm -hmm. of getting help in the door to make dinner. Mm-hmm. And one of them is, Mom, I have Susan making dinner for us a couple nights a week, and I want to share her with you. Mm-hmm. That's one idea. Another one is, Mom, I'm, well, on one doctor's appointment, maybe, she would get a wonderful caregiver to come with her on a doctor's appointment with her mother. So it's the daughter, the mother, and the caregiver. Mm-hmm. And then the mother, I mean, the daughter might have to leave early or the daughter might say, I can't come for the follow-up visit next week to the doctor, but Susan can. Mm-hmm. So then you get Susan involved. So what we do is we weave in helpers through the side door in a sense, mm-hmm. because the daughter cannot sustain this. And especially in the future, this can't, this isn't sustainable. So she has to, uh, she has to get other people, but to get other people to attach, to get mother to attach to other people is, is a creative art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it it can be done. Mm -hmm. You do it all the time. Right. Well, so it sounds like that, first of all, you have to start brainstorming creative ways to bring in somebody else and also again, be ready to tolerate the fact that they may not be happy about it or welcome it at least right away, mm-hmm. you know, that there may be some complaining that uh, one has to, to tolerate about it or not, but it sounds like it takes a, f- a few tries to figure out potentially the, the right approach, but to really stick with, we're going to find some alternative to the adult child going every day in a way that's not sustainable for them. And I want to give you another suggestion. Mm-hmm. There are care managers all over the country and every, um, almost every big city, right? And what a care manager can do is be the first person that's a non-family member 
that visits for one hour once a week. Mm -hmm. So the parent gets used to a non-family member. And then that care manager, after getting a trusting relationship, which could take two to two visits to two months, after the trusting relationship, that care manager can say, oh, I see that you you know, are losing weight. I have somebody who cooks. Let me bring mm -hmm. her in next mm -hmm. week. Right. So it's, it, it's sometimes it's too much tension between the mother and the daughter, the mother and the son or the whatever. It's too much tension, but a non-family member who gets involved, but just lightly mm -hmm. once a week mm -hmm. and sometimes bring in the help. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you're getting at also just this idea that often it takes, you know, little steps at a time. <laughs> right. Right. That's right. Um, because I think people are sometimes hoping for just everything to be solved rather quickly. And I wish it were possible, but I find that it's it's often uh, not so possible. Well, adult children are usually in a hurry because they have so much on their plate. Mm. And the retired older person doesn't. Mm -hmm. So the speed at which the children want change is is sometimes can be detrimental. Right. Yeah. We've also learned just more about uh, kind of, you know, normal cognitive changes in, in aging brains and how just processing slows down a bit and older adults really do need, you know, more time to think through decisions. That's right. And I could talk for a second mm -hmm. about the double whammy of an older person having a personality problem. And on top of that, they're beginning to have cognitive impairment. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe before we talk about cognitive impairment, which is a special situation that is really important, and I want you to talk about it because I think it's, it's often the driver or, or, or player in these situations. Could you briefly just talk about how just for normal older adults who don't have difficult personalities and don't have uh, cognitive impairment, I think in your in your book or during one of our conversations before this interview, you kind of mentioned that that just a normal older person has to go through this whole process of adjusting to changes as they get older. Could you talk about that? Because I think it's helpful to remind our audience of that. It's not obvious to those of us who are not in that position, I think. Well, an older adult that's uh, not difficult goes through many, I call them assaults of aging. Mm -hmm. um, and that is hearing problems, eye problems, arthritis, back problems. And they also go through losses of very close friends and family, particularly mm -hmm. if they live into their 90s. There's also many, many joys of aging. We can do a whole nother talk on the joys of aging. Oh, we definitely should. Yeah. But, <laughs> but the, the hard, the struggle I think you're wanting me to talk about are these are these aging and one of the most difficult for older people is is the brain changing and there is normal uh, changes of the brain that are not dementia mm -hmm. and those are things that you and I are probably suffering from right now which are you know not remembering an actor's name or not remembering where you put something yeah, when no, you walked into a, the room. A lot of things uh, slow down and get a little worse. And what I'll do is actually I wrote an article about it for Better Health While Aging, the, you know, what's normal. So I'll be sure to post a link to that in yeah, the show age. notes if people want a, right. a little more information about what is normal and what should be expected. But 
but every 80 and 90 year old is afraid that their normal brain changes are going to go into Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease. And that's not true necessarily. Mm-hmm. But that's what everybody's worried about. Right. So every older person basically has to go through these challenges and through the work of adapting to a variety of age related challenges. And then before we go into people who have cognitive impairment, I think if you have a difficult personality, what is it like to go through those changes? Well, a difficult personality is generally a person who has a rigid, rigid personality structure meaning that they don't adapt well. And so if they can't use their right arm because they just had an operation on it, a normal person would try to adapt and use their left arm or whatever. Or they can't play tennis, so they play ping pong. I mean, I'm doing silly things, but they adapt. But a person with a difficult personality usually is so angry about it or so resigned or so just wants to give up, that they have a very, very hard time, much harder than a a person who is adapting. So we have a very happy man in a small little tiny nursing home room. And he's very, very happy because he's always been happy. Mm -hmm. But a difficult person having to go into a nursing home would probably, you know, be very very angry mm-hmm. or give up and go to bed and want to die. Yeah. So the project you can always tell if someone's going to age well if they are easygoing, kind of an easygoing person. Mm-hmm. Unless they have in my mind, unless they have tremendous pain because pain can change your personality mm. too. Mm-hmm. You know, if they have to live with a lot of pain, if you are an easygoing kind of adaptable person, you'll probably do well with aging. Mm-hmm. This is a big generalization I'm making, but it right, yes, yes. You, know, you have to talk like this sometimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, also, I think you allude to this in your book, but that sometimes the children of difficult parents worry that they might be difficult, or that they're they're going to become one of these very difficult older people. And and I think you point out that. Um, if one can realize, you know, earlier in life, <laughs> one's own uh, personality tendencies, it's possible to work on that and not entirely change yourself, but become, you know, potentially better at adapting to some of these changes. I think you're right. And I always say, if you're picking up the book and reading it, you have some self-awareness, difficult people, so that you probably aren't going to be difficult. You know, if you're an adult child reading this book, Mm -hmm. you have some self-awareness because you want to understand yourself better. Mm -hmm. But the difficult personality usually doesn't know or understand they're narcissistic Mm -hmm. or they have turn-off behaviors. They don't have any self-awareness. So you're way ahead if you have some awareness of your own patterns. Mm -hmm. The difficult person usually does not go for psychotherapy Mm -hmm. because they don't think it's their fault. Right. Well, I was thinking of, you know, people who maybe don't think of themselves as easygoing. And and I want to say, I I think there's always the possibility of working, learning to know yourself better and work on yourself so that on your resilience and adaptability and that that will serve us all well as we get older to help us navigate the bumps and challenges that are kind of inevitable if one is lucky enough to live a long time. And um, 
good advice. Well, so, uh, well, but I've learned everything from reading your books and, you know, from other people who are older and wiser and trying Mm -hmm. to pick up from those things. Now you, now let's come back to what you brought up before, which was the issue of cognitive impairment. So people who really are having a, a more than normal age related change in their memory or thinking. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, if they're a little concerned because they're getting lost in very come, you know, neighborhoods that they never did, or they can't write a check, or they are f- forgetting appointments a lot, mm-hmm. getting all mixed up, mm-hmm. they can go for, they can either go see a neurologist for a memory workup, or they can see a neuropsychologist for a paper and pencil test, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you can go to your internist first and say, I'd like a memory workup, and they'll probably do medical tests to see that you don't have thyroid problems or other medical conditions, vitamin B12. Yes, and I'm just going to speak up briefly to say that I, I do feel like the initial workup is appropriate to be done by a primary care doctor, and because I see it often happening inadequately. Uh, I did write something for Better Health While Aging about the 10 common causes of cognitive impairment, including many reversible ones, mm-hmm. and what should be checked at that initial evaluation with a generalist. So I'll post a link to that too. That'll be very um, helpful. As a resource, because it reflects a lot of what you're, you're sharing right now. That would be helpful. And, and one that internists sometimes aren't as aware of is um, massive anxiety or depression can look just like a dementia. Mm-hmm. And so if the person has some showing some signs of this, it's really wise to also go to a, a geriatric psychiatrist for checking them out because it, that is a very reversible condition. Mm -hmm. One way to get older people to check out their memories is to tell them that there's so many reversible situations here. Mm -hmm. So what are your other sort of thoughts on helping a difficult older parent who maybe is experiencing memory and thinking problems? Well, I talk to them about the the reversible. I, I talk to them about how so many are reversible, and that is really... I think one of the best ways of of getting them to have a workup mm-hmm. um, and how worried they are and to tell me some examples. Mm-hmm. And I might tell them if they give me very good examples, I might be able to tell them uh, that they sound very age related, mm-hmm. but I'd have to know them pretty well because sometimes people want to present a better side in the first interview. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And we should also just bring up that you sort of mentioned earlier that getting older doesn't, you know, in of itself make people difficult. But some people do change as they get older, become much more anxious than they were before, or much more, quote, difficult or argumentative. And that's actually a red flag for us as geriatricians and in evaluating people. Because sometimes those kinds of uh, changes in personality or, or anxiety can reflect an underlying medical condition that is affecting how the brain works. I agree. And I could add a few more things. Mm-hmm. A person Do. that has a heart surgery mm-hmm. or major other surgery or has lost a, 
an adult child mm-hmm. or a spouse mm-hmm. or has to be moved mm-hmm. can all uh, trigger a, a depression or anxiety. Uh, they can have a bout of depression that's very severe mm-hmm. because of these late life um, events. Mm-hmm. And so it, you know, we, we talk more about lifelong difficulties, but it can be late life difficulties, mm-hmm. like a major, major loss of health or a person in your life. Very true. Very true. So I think we always want to be thinking a little bit about what were they like before and what has happened recently and what might be going on recently because the brain becomes vulnerable as people get older and all kinds of medical or, you know, intense social stressors can really affect its function. That's right. And every two older people look, have so much history and they're never alike, whereas little babies are you can tease out things much easier, but when you get old, there's layers and layers of complications, emotional, physical, organic. It gets like, you have to be a detective with yeah. your doctor like you are. Yeah, very much so. Or if you're the adult child, <laughs> or if you're trying to figure child. out what's going on. Uh, so one of the things we do when we're interviewing people, we say, what is old behavior in your mother? And mm-hmm. what is new? Mm-hmm. And that really helps them and us to for, to uh, begin to assess what's going on. Mm-hmm. I like that. What is old behavior and what is new? Although at first I thought you were asking them, you know, what do you think of as old behavior? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, because people sometimes attribute certain behaviors or activities to aging when when they're not right like you know right. losing all your interest in doing things that right. that is not aging right you know right. and it shouldn't be just uh, or falling i mean it's common with aging but that doesn't mean it should be waved off as part of aging and not looked into and intervened on some of the worst some of the worst offenders of this are older people who are sort of against their own you know they feel like it's that if they fall, it's just, it's purely an aging issue. Oh, yes. Well, that sort of reflects us as a society, not knowing enough about aging or having a sort of overly declinist view um, of it. So, well, wonderful. Well, this has been so helpful and interesting to talk about with you. I guess in, you know, wrapping things up. So you said that most older adults are not difficult people. You know, most people have not been a lifelong difficult person. And so presumably most people don't have incredibly difficult parents, but people still often struggle to navigate a changing relationship with their parents when age-related challenges come up. Also, you know, sibling dynamics often become more complicated. Can you share some thoughts or suggestions on just how to more successfully navigate this stage of life with its kind of, you know, more usual challenges? Well, I could talk for a, a minute about siblings Sure. Like me to do yes. that. Um, I see more since 1982. I've been seeing more and more complicated family structures, like stepsisters and stepsons, mm-hmm. and all this. And so, there's large, large families. Some of them are not blood relatives, uh, and they have different views of their stepmother and father, or their whatever. So it gets enormously complicated. And one of the things that has helped in my practice is to 
have everyone on the phone that wants to be on the phone or in the office and facilitate a monthly meeting, even if there's nothing going wrong with the parent. Mm. And mm-hmm. I teach, and there's a lot of stressors, stresses mm-hmm. going on among family members usually. Yeah. But I hold one, maybe one a month, and I'm the facilitator. And eventually, they take over and they meet once a month on the phone. Mm. This monthly meeting business is, is working a lot with people uh-huh. because there are primary caregivers that live right close to the parent. And then there's these secondary caregivers who live far away. And there's lots of dynamics between the two. Oh, and yeah. To talk and to tell each other what they're doing, you know, are we all okay? Mm-hmm. Well, we all doing okay tell us what we're not doing okay and and it's it's and and you don't force people to attend but mm-hmm. it's it can be a, a very valuable because when everyone's in a room and I asked do you all want to relate to each other after your parent has died do mm-hmm. you all want to still relate it's really a jaw-dropping question because mm. people look at each other and they you know, it's really a profound question because if they do, then they need to do something about it. Right, right. And with these monthly meetings, are the older parents part of the meeting too? No. Mm. I mean, they can be, mm-hmm. but my practice is 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 bias, not biased, but they're more difficult older people. So mm-hmm. the children want to have a productive meeting mm-hmm. about the care of their parents. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about younger, not younger, but, uh, you know, not d- normal parents, mm-hmm. not difficult. Of course, these, they probably talk on the phone all the time, but if there's, they can join their kids. Mm-hmm. I'm just used to working with children who want to talk about the care of their parents. Right. Right. So they're, of their difficult parents. Yeah. Well, it sounds like through this monthly meeting, you're kind of helping everybody practice talking to each other about the parents and that there is probably an advantage in doing that sooner before there are really difficult emotional decisions to be made, because we certainly see it a lot in healthcare that often people have not had substantial conversations until there is a really serious crisis. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, um, it's just especially challenging to, you know, all the underlying dynamics <laughs> and issues mm-hmm. have not been addressed. And then it's very difficult to do so. That's a good point. At the it's time like that there's a crisis. It's preventive health. Help. Yes. Or I feel like it's like practicing, you know, on the, the bunny slope before you right. have to go down, you know, the moguls. Right. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, because if, you know, if it's challenging to just have these conversations when there is no emergency going on, which it certainly can be for some of these families, because people have accumulated feelings about, about what's going on with their parents and their siblings. I, I just find that often people have accumulated some feelings about it. Oh, absolutely. Right? It's, it's the most highly charged feelings you can have about your parents mm-hmm. uh, and yeah. about your siblings. And then similarly, um, would you say that ideally it's good for adult children to talk with their parents before there are, are crises, whether their parents are difficult or, or not? 
to kind of more successfully navigate the challenges later? It's very hard to talk about charged situations like driving and having help in the house or moving mom, when would you like to move? When a parent is very, very resistant to touch, to talking about it. So with a difficult parent, we have a two words, watchful waiting. Mm-hmm. Those are words of if the parent is at medium to low risk of mm-hmm. health and safety, we have mm-hmm. the children just watchfully wait. But to have conversations in general about highly charged things, uh, subjects, usually will produce much more tension and stress. However, children of easier parents, I completely applaud conversations about wills and power of attorney and health future and future planning. What might we do if, you know, this or right. that came up? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But not with this subset. Today, I've been talking about a small slice of people that are older. So, yeah. Well, that's a great insight. I love that term, watchful waiting. And I also love how in your book, you actually provide some examples on how to sort of assess a situation and, you know, start taking at least an educated guess as to whether it seems low risk, very high risk, or as you point out, a lot of them are kind of medium Mm-hmm. and in a gray area. And in that case, it might be necessary to get help from others determining mm-hmm. whether it's risky enough to intervene. But I found that to be a very helpful section of your, your book. And so I want to recommend you. that part as well. Well, in closing, any last favorite resources, tips, or suggestions that you would like to share with the audience if they just want to take some next steps in uh, navigating the relationship issues that come up when helping aging parents? I would say to have um, to be self-aware about your own triggers, mm-hmm. what triggers you, and learn how to go more into a neutral stance so that you, you're not so agitated or angry or guilty. Um, and I think that it is so worth doing this work because it helps with, as I said before, it helps with any difficult person in your life, mm-hmm. not only your parent, but these skills are really, I, I give this book out when they have difficult bosses, children, mm-hmm. stepsisters. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it, they're skills mm-hmm. that you can learn. So they're tools to, to look at the situation more objectively. And my final statement is if, if you're in a rut, you can get out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So don't assume it's there forever. Right. You know, there's hope. There's a lot of hope. Things Even can be done. Feel like you're at the end of your rope. There's hope. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, you point out in your book that the truth is that usually when one is facing challenges with an older parent, it's the adult child who has more capacity to change and adapt, even if they do feel at the end of their rope than their difficult older parent. That is the whole essence of the book. Right. Well, Barbara, thank you once again for taking the time today. It's really been a pleasure. You're welcome, Leslie. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. 
To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.